0: Yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. All right. Uh, people are wondering what's going on here. Hi, everyone. I'm Fraser Kane. I've been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years. I'm the publisher of universe today. And I like to bring you behind the scenes talking to some of the people who are actually doing the science. This is going to be way out of my comfort zone today. But I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm talking to uh, Dr. William
1: Ratcliffe. William, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great right. to be here. The question I always ask people: Who are you? What do you do? So I'm an evolutionary biologist and uh, and an astrobiologist. So oh, you are an I, astrobiologist.
0: Uh, Whew! All right, yeah, that's a I mean, relief. It's, that's,
1: okay, it's a big tent. It's a big tent. So <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways to to be an astrobiologist, and I am the variety that tries to understand the origin of complex life.
0: Yes. So so I guess let's. Um... Man, where do we start? Okay, so let's talk about the history of like, just like, yeah. multicellular complex, complex life. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. How, what do we think about how life went from single cellular organisms to multicellular organisms?
1: Great question. Um, the first thing I want to, to sort of, you know, get into people's heads is that it's not like it was a single thing. This didn't just happen once. And then we had this, you know, Renaissance of multicellular lineages. This is something which has happened many times in the history of life in different unicellular backgrounds. So we know of at least 50 different origins of multicellularity, each occurring independently. The very earliest ones happened in bacteria. So cyanobacteria, right around the Great Oxidation event, no shade to my geologist friends, but the event took a couple 100 million years. So not much of an event, but, uh, but, you know, around uh, 2 billion years ago, probably a few 100 million years earlier than that, cyanobacteria started to form filaments and um, some of those and they divided labor they have real development some cells fix carbon through photosynthesis some cells some cells fix nitrogen um, which is very very poor, its easily destroyed by oxygen so they have separate cells which close off and fix nitrogen and, and then share those products with each other within the bacterial world multicellularity has evolved a bunch of times but it's never really gotten that complex but it's kind of been around like it's probably honestly my opinion is multicellular bacteria have probably been around since we've had bacteria because it's really not that hard Hmm. to get a group of cells and then to to select on the functional benefits of having a group of cells like that process that's what we do in the lab that's pretty easy but you know we don't really have a great fossil record pre two and a half billion years ago and the things that we do find are you know sketchy you can usually figure out it's a cell because it looks like a cell and you can 13c you know analyze it and show that it pass carbon through a biological filter but beyond that you can't say much um
0: so, so sorry yeah. so if we if we look at yeah. all of the animal but I mean all of the animals on earth mm-hmm. yeah they all stem from one single that's ancestor
1: right. that's and right so uh, one single one single transition we have to be careful with differentiating between individual ancestors and right. populations B- but but yeah. I, essentially one technology for going multicellular yep basically yes although the story is actually more complicated when you zoom in on the actual transition right um, okay okay i'll get there but maybe i can just paint a big picture Sure. yeah you know please go uh, ahead yep. on Earth. so bacteria did it for and then basically between the great oxidation event and um the rise of oxygen in the phanerozoic which is about a billion and a half years there wasn't really that much happening it was a fairly boring time um what we did have within the eukaryotes which arose which evolved again themselves right around two billion years ago so two billion years in the grand sweep of sort of earth's history that's kind of like a there's a big pin in that point right where origin of life roughly three and a half billion years ago and then two billion years ago is is you have uh cyanobacteria cranking out enough oxygen that the earth becomes aerobic eukaryotes arise around that time just for our listeners eukaryotes are these kinds of cells that resulted from a symbiosis between an archaea and a bacteria and the archaea kind of was like the pr- presumably sort of the host cell and the bacteria uh, evolved into what are now our mitochondria and so we actually have we're confident about this and we can go into that whole story if you sure. interested. It's, it's super cool and then not much happened with multicellularity in that boring billion between one and two and one billion years ago then eukaryotes kind of took the ball and went nuts with it so animals probably started around 800 million years ago We're kind of relying on molecular clock data pre 650 million years and that data is kind of sketchy because the assumptions that underlie it are are just not true but but it's probably between 650 and 800 million we can be confident about that fungi probably evolved around that time red algae were going actually about a billion years ago so the seaweeds were starting off 450 million years ago plants evolved we don't really know when fungi arose but fungi we do know that from simple fungal ancestors complex mushroom forming ancestors probably evolved eight to 11 times independently using the same basic genetic toolkit that their ancestors had, but weren't using for complex multicellularity. And then the green algae, they're crazy multicellular files. They've evolved multicellularity more than 25 times independently. One of those lineages became what are land plants. And we typically say, oh, they're land plants. But really the hard thing there was colonizing air. (laughs) all of these marine algae live underwater and they evolved underwater. And so evolving to grow out of the water, that's really hard. And so even today in modern land plants, you see the succession of things that start out like liverworts, where they're basically just like like on the creek side, like laying fully on the soil because they can't transport, they have no way to transport water. So first you get a cuticle, then you get the ability to transport water, then you get wood and you see this cool series of sort of evolutionary innovations in plants that allows them to, to compete for light and become 300 feet tall. And that's pretty much it. That's the grand sweep. And animals are the ones that we often really care about because animals, land plants, algae, and the macroalgaes, so seaweeds, those are the five lineages that have really run away with multicellularity, evolved complex multicellular forms, evolved complicated cellular differentiation, division of labor and development, and everything else, while there's many, many different origins, they've all remained relatively simple compared to those five lineages.
0: So, with those those five methods of using multicellular yep. itty, multicellularity, multicellularity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So is that is that sort of like a version of of convergent evolution where you've got like bats and birds and and insects all developing wings, but using different parts of the body to do it?
1: Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. Right. Okay. And it's, and, and conversion evolution is kind of a nested term. So, or concept. So first, for sure, we see conversion evolution of multicellularity in different lineages. And and you can imagine that plants and animals are doing it for very different reasons. Like they're not really in bats, bats and and, and birds are evolving flight for kind of the same reason. In fact, they're very similar, but land plants and animals, like they are evolving to form Hmm. groups and divide labor for, fundamentally different reasons. So so
0: multicellularity yeah. has an, an evolutionary benefit. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily the same one.
1: That's right. That's right. There's a bunch of so exactly, and I think and I think this gets at this big picture thing that like, while we use the term multicellularity to describe these organisms, which contain more than one cell and have integrated function. Um, there are lots of different ways to be multicellular. There are lots of different reasons to be multicellular. And it's, in some sense, it's a it's like, it's, it's a bit weird to group them all into the same group, like they're really different, like they, they do fit in the same basket, for a good reason, they're multicellular. But they're not all of a kind, they are very different from one another. And, and you're familiar with the ones that are actually the most complicated. There's slime molds that do crazy things, there's ciliates, which form stock fruiting bodies, like, there's all sorts of there's There are bacteria that live in caves that basically, as soon as the water, like the water floods periodically, and as soon as the water touches them, they spew out like propagules from a multicellular fruiting body type thing. There's all sorts of weird ways to be, I mean, kind of alien, right? There's all sorts of weird ways to be multicellular. And there's a lot of different benefits associated with multicellularity that either would favor the first origin of groups of cells. And or so when we think
0: about 99% of all life has gone extinct throughout history. Mm, if yeah. we know of 50 right now, it's got to be likely mm. that there's, that's orders of magnitude off the number of times that life has actually figured it out in ways we can't even imagine.
1: I think that's probably true. Um, certainly, I mean, in a sense, you're, there are some robustness to the fact that clades diversify. And so even though the majority of animals or plants that ever had existed are gone, we still know of those multicellular clades, right? And so there's kind of, you know, unless the entire clade goes extinct, we would have some some record of it in the modern day. And we definitely have fossil evidence of multicellular forms that bear no modern counterparts mm. and are very enigmatic. And, um, and,
0: and like, are there examples then of, of fossil evidence where, it might be showing some kind of multicellularity multicellularity that yeah. we're not that we don't know what it
1: is exactly yeah so there are these there are these fossils from Namibia right right around the great oxidation event 2.1 billion years ago which look like fried eggs i mean they're about the right they're slightly smaller than a chicken egg like in between a chicken and a quail egg and they have this sort of frill and a dome um and we have no idea what they are <laughs> we're we're sure they're biological yeah no clue what the organism was doing you know there's, but but they look pretty multicellular to me so. now you mentioned oxygen a bunch of times so what role yeah. does oxygen
0: play in the struggle for life to to survive and and the reasons for it to gain multicellularity yeah no multicellularity. It's a great question i'll get this word it's, by the end of this episode
1: <laughs> you can also use multicellular as an adjective so multicellular yeah. forms multicellular. multicellular. perfect perfect yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um so oxygen is one of those things that's like just game changing to, to Earth as a planet, right? It's It completely changes the way life interacts with the planet. It's a consequence of life. So it's one of those just geoengineering things at a broad scale that, you know, had to be pretty epic to watch, right? Because you're just precipitating massive amounts of iron out of the oceans. I mean, we're driving around in cars that are a result of the banded iron formations from two two billion years ago when we were just <laughs> dumping iron from the oceans, right? Like, it's cool uh and it's highly toxic to cells right if you're not if you if you don't have the machinery to deal with oxygen then it's going to kill you um so you know that's actually fairly solvable organisms can make themselves oxygen proof but oxygen is this fantastic electron acceptor so it makes aerobic metabolism possible aerobic metabolism is far more efficient than fermentation you know it's 16 times the atp so and and you can eat food sources that you couldn't eat if you're trying to ferment them so, you know, I, I, I work on yeast, yeast, if you don't give them oxygen, they make you beer, right? They take sugar, they make ethanol. Yeah. Hey, ethanol you don't
0: want them to have oxygen.
1: <laughs> you don't want them to have oxygen. But as everyone who drinks too much beer knows, there's a lot of calories left in that in that ethanol, right? You you'll get a beer gut if you drink too much too much beer. And it's, it's the ethanol that's providing a lot of that energy. And we get that energy because we can burn it with oxygen, right? If you give yeast oxygen, they'll burn the ethanol too. And they'll divide using that as, a, as an energy source. So there's all this non-fermentable carbon in the world. You need oxygen as a cofactor to eat. And if you can't, so in a sense, it's like food, it's like a key part of food. If you don't have it, then there's all the stuff you can't eat. So once oxygen becomes available, it stays at a very low concentration on the order of, we don't really know, it's hard to pin it down, but it's probably on the order of 1% or less of what modern levels are for about 1.4 billion years and then it quickly blasts up to near modern levels around 650 million years ago on the Phanerozoic. Um, and so there's been this so actually we, we've worked we work on oxygen and the role of oxygen the evolution of size which is a sort of fundamental thing like every multicellular organism has to get it, you know it's getting bigger than its ancestor once you start adding multiple cells together you get big and a fundamental constraint of multicellularity is diffusion limitation. It's a, it's, it's a cost to everything that forms a group initially, that you're just going to be now this big inert thing that, that if you want stuff from the outside, it's got to diffuse through through multiple layers of cells. That's hard to do. It slows down a lot, especially if you're consuming it actively. And so um, w- there's been this idea for a long time that, that sort of oxygen is this, this accelerant on multicellularity, that the more you have The more types, complex types of multicellular you can have, the larger organisms you can support because oxygen can diffuse further before you evolve a circulatory system. And so it's kind of this thing that, you know, the more the better. And we've done some recent work that actually kind of challenges that notion rather than being a monotonic benefit. We've actually shown with experiments and with mathematical modeling that oxygen has this sort of interesting Nike swoosh relationship with organismal size. That when there's none of it around, well, then you just don't organisms don't care about it. They're not competing for it. They're not trying to use it. But as you begin to add oxygen to a system, then actually that becomes a valuable resource in its own right. And if there's a trade off between being big, forming a big group and being able to eat that oxygen efficiently just due to diffusion, and there is this trade off, then in fact, there can be reasons to get smaller, to more efficiently compete hmm. for this, this, this limiting oxygen. And then if you continue pumping oxygen to the system, well, then in fact, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, because you can be big, but oxygen diffuses far enough within you that you don't have to be small. So then then you kind of relieve that constraint. And there's this interesting thing that if you you have some oxygen suppression of multicellular size, because the evolutionary incentives are to get smaller, is more gain to being smaller and eating the oxygen than to being bigger and getting whatever benefits of group size exist in your environment. You can actually, as you p- keep adding more and more oxygen, you can make that suppression stronger and stronger because you're just amping up the benefits of being small. <laughs> you're providing more and more metabolism you can get from oxygen until you cr- pass a critical point, and then it becomes beneficial again to get big. And so we've, we've shown this with some cool experiments in our lab, and, and it's, it's a very robust uh, result from first principles modeling that you can you can vary the assumptions of the model dramatically and still recover this result.
0: No. Um, now you mentioned this idea of yeah. a boring period.
1: Yeah, the boring oxygen, billion. <clears throat> the boring That's billion. That's what they call it. Or, <laughs> yeah, when oxygen yeah. was
0: present, but yeah. but you weren't seeing this arms race in in size and multicellular life. So right. why?
1: We don't know, and I don't know if we'll ever know. So one of the one of the things that you have to accept if you go into my field is that it can be very difficult to have a strong confidence that we're able to explain the past. Some things are, we're very confident in, the broad sweep of the way in which life has unfolded, the, the pattern of inheritance and diversification. We're pretty confident in that. Like We are very confident that all living things that we've ever seen share a common ancestor. Like those, Some of those results are easy. But some of these causal arguments, there's a lot of different variables. And differentiating between a competing hypotheses can be very difficult. Um, So, for example, in the case of of, Earth's history, we don't really know if the reason why we didn't have much happening in the world of multicellularity from 2 billion years up to about 650 million years ago, or even really 1 billion, that's when red algae started doing their thing, is that because... Oxygen was too suppressive. There was just, you know, like it was really—it's—it was too hard to get. If it had been anaerobic, maybe they would have been able to get big because they didn't care about oxygen. But you add enough oxygen to the system, but thats not a winning ecological strategy. Is it? And, you know, the big—the big confounding variable here is—is is it something about the cell biology of the ancestors that existed at that time? I mean, there's really three major hypotheses. Is it something big about Earth Earth state? Is it something about the prerequisites that you need in terms of the the state of the the genetics of the ancestor? And I can talk more about that. That turns out to be Mm -hmm. very important. Mm -hmm. Or is it something about the the types of ecology and the selection on organisms that drives multicellular innovation, right? And so all three of these things are changing a lot. And so it's very difficult to try to to ascribe causation to any one of them.
0: But but it it feels like, you know, if if this oxygen was present, and we've seen life utilize this many times, figure out Mm -hmm. how to go multicellular many times in the past, that there was some rate limiting step in that period. And it, I mean, my instinct is, is Mm -hmm. complexity that there was some, Mm -hmm. there was some, some very Mm -hmm. rare thing that life had to figure out to be able to make that that next step during that period, because when there's lots of oxygen present, it seems to do it Mm -hmm. many times, and you can make it do it in the lab, and so on and so forth.
1: Right. Although, interestingly enough, in the lab, it actually the easiest thing for us to do is to evolve them without any oxygen. In fact, that's, that's way better than giving them like 20% of modern oxygen. In in our system, if we evolve them with like, open tubes, where they're open to the atmosphere, and they're consuming oxygen as it diffuses in, even if we put them through 6000 generations of strong selection to make bigger groups, they get two, three times bigger than their ancestor. If we do it with no oxygen in that same time, they get 20,000 times bigger. And if we pump in tons of oxygen, well, those are harder experiments. So we we haven't done them as long. But if we do that over a shorter period of time, they also evolve to be larger very quickly. And so you can really see that the constraint of, of sort of intermediate oxygen can be a very strong constraint on size. It's just the benefits of being big have to really outweigh the growth penalty of being big so so let's talk a little bit about
0: your research and your work with with yeast Uh, Mm -hmm. so what is the experiment that you're running
1: yeah so um, we are doing a long-term evolution experiment in the vein of rich lenski i'm not sure if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with this work um so the longest
0: running evolutionary experiment ever
1: yep they're on seventy-five thousand generations in their e coli He's been doing this for over 30 years and in fact he just passed over uh, the reins of the experiment to Jeff Barrick at UT Austin who was his former postdoc and Rich is going to be retiring and it's to me it's a very uh, foundational experiment it's not just inspiring it's something which has kind of enabled my career and our approach I wouldn't have tried to do what we were doing if Rich's work hadn't come first and so we we're actually trying to do a similar version of what Rich has done so Rich Lensky in this experiment they're taking E. coli and they passage them every single day where they undergo a hundredfold exponential increase in numbers, then they drop it down a hundredfold. And they just keep this exponential growth and passaging going over and over and over, and you can c- accumulate six point six generations a day. And Now they're on generation seventy-five thousand, and you can watch all these cool things about how evolution works because we have this. And you freeze them every, you know, every five hundred generations in yeah. a minus eighty deep freezer. You can pull them out; they're still alive. You can basically ask and answer any evolutionary question you can imagine because you have the entire evolutionary series in your lab, right? Frozen, available to reconstitute any time, Jurassic Park style. So we're doing the same thing, but from multicellularity. Um, we work with yeast, not E. coli. So it's a, it's a eukaryote, it's a fungus. And we start out with things where we actually remove, we delete the function of a single gene. And that gene's job is to allow daughter cells to separate after cell division is complete. And you get these cool fractal like tree growth forms as a result where daughter cells remain attached to their mothers. Their mothers, every time they bud, they stick a new branch off. Each of those branches has the same sort of topology and you get this this fractal dimensionality to these branching bushy structures, but they grow in three dimensions. So they're kind of spheres. They have a life cycle. They grow until they hit spatial constraints whereby cellular mm. packing exceeds the strength of a cell-cell connection and they break a branch and just like cutting a branch off a tree if you break a cell-cell connection that whole branch separates there's a single cell genetic bottleneck the break point is a single cell and that has daughters granddaughters great-granddaughters great-great-granddaughters etc so the whole group coalesces its genealogy back to that single cell that broke off from the parent and now these things are growing they have a life cycle where they grow and divide so if you stick a single, we call them snowflake yeast in, into a tube of, 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 sugar water, basically they'll make you hundred million by the you know, end of, end of growth. <laughs> so, so they, they re- readily populate repopulate, you know, their environment. So they, they have reproduction. Um, and as mutations arise spontaneously, randomly, they're partitioned out between groups, groups never come back together. They're clonal. And so what you actually have is this really cool system where with very few inputs, we just broke one gene. You take a single cell organism, it forms groups, those groups have a life cycle such as they reproduce. And it turns out that they segregate genetic variation between groups very neatly. And as a result, you can have um, mutations acting at the cell level, which create new traits at the group level, because you know, you change the behavior of a cell and that has an emergent effect on the composition and behavior of the group as a whole, even without any development, um, developmental innovation that sort of allows mutations at cell levels to create new patterns. That's just built into the system that if you have right. something which, 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 which grows, you can perturb a cell, a cell level behavior and you get an emergent multicellular behavior. And natural selection sees those multicellular traits and can act upon them. We do the simplest experiment possible. We grow them in a test tube. We let them expand roughly 100 fold every day. And then we do a race to the bottom of the test tube. Actually, we pull out only 10% of the population. Let them do a race to the bottom of the test tube. Take the bottom of the bottom of that, put them back into fresh media and let them grow. Hmm. So they have to grow fast and they have to sink fast. And the main way in which they evolve to sink fast is through evolving to be bigger. Evolving to be bigger. Now, now we're doing this over the long term. So we are on transfer oh, really 1,000. Clever. Yeah, it's so that. simple.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Evolve. But, but the, like yeah. encouraging them to to select themselves so you can get get at them easily which i think is that's really clever. that's
1: absolutely key if anybody listening ever wants to do their own evolution experiment you need to make it something where in a few seconds you can select on a million things yeah. and pick the winners because if you're going to do it you know like we've done versions of this experiment where you use a laser a laser sorting flow cytometer to find individual groups and stick them into a different tube
0: yeah that sounds hard
1: It's so hard. It always breaks. Something goes wrong. You know, you have to come in. We do our transfers seven days a week, 365 days a year. So, you know, the student who's doing this is tired. They celebrate. They pass their quals. They get drunk. They're hung over the next Saturday. They totally botched the experiment. I mean, these things happen. It's a guarantee. It's a statistical inevitability. So keep it really simple. Be able to, you know, act over a million of them with 10 seconds, which in our case, we can transfer, you know, 20 populations in maybe 15 minutes, all told all the steps. So it's really easy to do. And each population has initially maybe on the order of a million groups. And then as they evolve to be bigger, that number goes down because the cell number stays conserved, roughly speaking, but the group size increases dramatically. So our group population size shrinks. And so in the tubes with where there so we have three different metabolic treatments in our multicellular long term evolution experiment, which I'll just give you the little pun here. So Rich Lenski's long-term evolution experiment, the famous one, is called the LTEE, and ours is the multicellular long-term evolution experiment. So it's the mole M U L T E and multi for cellular. Ha! Anyway, nice uh, backronym. You did it. <laughs> I named it with a former student of Rich's. We were just chatting uh, one day on Twitter, and it was good. So we have three major treatments. We do. We have yeast that start out genetically identical one treatment of five replicate populations. So they're initially exactly the same, and there's five tubes. So we can now look at convergent evolution in our own system. Five tubes, we broke their mitochondria, so they can't use oxygen at all, All, they're just fermenting. We have five tubes where they can only grow by using their mitochondria, they can't ferment. So only fermentation, only oxygenic respiration, and then we have a treatment where they can first ferment and then respire the ethanol. Hmm. And this was actually key because we had spent, I've been working on this system for 12 years. I started it when I was finishing up my PhD and it was a side project. And then I did a postdoc based on it. And then I got it started a lab in 2014 based on this system. So I've been working on this for a long time. And I tried a bunch of experiments where our snowflake yeast got a little bit bigger and then just plateaued. And size is really important because it's the lever for complexity. If you pull on size, you create all these side effects that are really hard for them to deal with, slower growth, diffusion limitation, you know, and that provides opportunities for refinement, innovation, breaking fundamental trade-offs. Initially, they're evolving along a trade-off between getting bigger and growing slower. And if you can break off that trade-off, now you're actually getting things that are more complex, right? They're getting integrated. They're evolving novel behaviors that allow them to get better. So that's really for us, like that's... That's the philosophies. So you can pull on size as a simple lever and you should get complexity as a way of being better while being big, right? And so it didn't work. <laughs> Our early experiments just, you know, they got a little bit bigger and then they plateaued for like a year. And the students doing this were getting really frustrated. Like, is my whole PhD gonna fail? What's going on? Um, a postdoc in my lab, Ozan Ozan-Bostog, um, started these different metabolic treatments with varying oxygen. And that, that was actually the key. Because it turns out that the treatments with no oxygen, they evolved to become very large, like bigger than fruit flies. So they went from being microscopic, you know, 100 cells, you can't see them with the naked eye, to having a million cells. They're 20,000 times bigger than their ancestor. And if we look at the physics of the group, we can actually look at the toughness, which is like the amount of energy it takes to break the group, um, scaled by volume. So the toughness of a toothpick and a 2 by 4 is the same. 2 by 4s are just stronger because they're right. bigger. And their toughness goes up 10,000 fold during this time. So what what it turns out they do, they they have this kind of cool innovation where first, they make their cells longer and longer and longer, That allows these things which grow as a branching process to just basically become fluffier, and they're taking up more three dimensional space, they're not packing and jamming and fracturing. Cool. That's that's kind of simple. And everyone does that like that. That's what all snowflakes do that's highly convergent. And there's really interesting genetic traits that allow that to happen. But then we see this change where they begin to actually entangle their cells. They begin to wrap their cells around each other. And once they start to wrap their cells around each other, that is sort of a phase transition, where as soon as some cells are entangling with other cells around them, that kind of percolates throughout the group. And now to break a branch away, it's like ripping vines off of, you know, your bush, your, your fence. It's really hard, right? As soon as you pull on one thing, you're pulling on the entire entangled group. And that means that the amount of amount of energy required to fracture these things goes up by a factor of 10,000. Which is pretty, which is pretty cool. And that's just fermentation, right? These these structures, these guys are just fermenting. Yeah, we this none of these things happen in our aerobic in our aerobic treatments. And they've been evolving now for about 6000 generations, which is about, you know, 1200 daily rounds of growth and size selection. And they basically aren't any bigger. Again, the constraint of being big on growth is just too large for those that are using oxygen. For those that are fermenting sugar, diffusion limitation is not as big of an issue. We throw a lot of sugar in their media, so it diffuses pretty rapidly, whereas oxygen gets pulled down in the, in the liquid pretty fast. They're in a classic microbiology thing, like a shaking flask, where the, op- the top is open to the air, and you're, you're shaking them really fast, 250 RPM. So these things are pretty tough. They're, they're being shaken at 250 RPM 24 hours a day, right? And they have to not break apart during this time. But still, if you put like a O2 probe in the media, you see it goes from like high oxygen down to quite low oxygen after, you know, as, as the population size exponentially grows up, so does the oxygen kind of mirror images that falls off, even though it's diffusing in, it still goes down to low levels. And if you look at how far it diffuses into a group, it only goes a few cell layers thick. We can use really cool probes, where we actually label the mitochondria with a, with a um, charge dependent fluorophore. And then you can actually see different colored mitochondria depending on the, the, uh, negative the, the membrane potential of mitochondria, mitochondria if they're working or not. So you can see that basically it's only going out of two cells thick hmm. into a group. And if you have a group with a million cells in it, it's a pretty small proportion of the biomass that's able to get that, get that oxygen. So small so small things basically just oxygen is this sort of tyrannical constraint <laughs> on size in, in our system. That if they have access to it and there's not a ton of it around, they never get bigger than a few hundred cells. But if you remove it, they get to be a million cells. And if you pump it in, they evolved actually to be bigger faster than anything else. But we never extended that experiment to long enough time periods to see macroscopic multicellularity rise. Those experiments are hard to do. We have to have a special apparatus to pump in oxygen, it tends to contaminate a lot with bacteria. And so we did it long enough to get a really nice paper. And then we stopped. We're not really? going to do that one. It sounds
0: it sounds like the most intriguing part of the process.
1: Yeah, it's a pain. And honestly, <laughs> I think from the anaerobic ones, we can still learn it.
0: Yeah. You know, Even like trying to your Nobel Prize, I guess. <laughs>
1: maybe. Maybe. Yeah, well, it's not so absorbent, but uh. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the goal. So, yeah. And then I, I can tell you some recent results that are not yet published, but are really exciting for us. So um, a graduate student in my lab, Kai Tong, uh, has led a single-cell RNA seq project to see if we're seeing the evolution of cellular differentiation, which is, in some sense, a holy grail of yeah. this kind of experiment. You know, you start out with something where they're simp- they're multicellular, but almost in a technical sense, yeah, there's multiple cells, but they're not organisms; they're not integrated. You can break them apart to single cells again, and they're they're okay, right? Um, and over time, we expect that that sort of multicellular organismality which is which is a word I don't recommend saying live on the air unless you practice it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it. <laughs> I've seen professors fail at that one in class. Uh, so multicellular organismality, which which philosophers actually argue is sort of distinct from what a what an individual is like, it's an organism, is something with integrated parts, basically, we expect that, you know, we see that in plants and animals, if you disassociate the cells, most of the time they die, not always, right, but most of the time they do. And that's because these things have evolved to have interdependence of parts. And we expect that to evolve gradually. That's not like a binary thing. We expect that to be an outcome of refinement adaptations on being in a group and being a better group and breaking off those trade-off curves and stuff like that. So getting cell differentiation, that's, that's a fundamental part of this. We wouldn't care about multicellularity if maximal complexity was a small clump of similar cells right like we'd be like oh cool it's a biofilm or like oh it's a group but but we wouldn't really be excited by it we are excited by multicellularity because of the complexity of the organisms that have evolved by the opportunities this creates for novel ecologies and by the by the way in which these new kinds of organisms have changed our planet right like um multicellular plants contain 80 percent of all biological carbon, (laughs) and that includes all bacteria and archaea like by one estimate at least like this is a global changing. So so
0: just to just understand, so like, when you have these, these, the, the anaerobic yeast that are going purely through fermentation, and you're finding they're changing their structure to hold Mm -hmm. on to each other. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of differentiation in their shape in the way that they're, you know, someone is using their left hand to hold on with their right hand? Or are they perfectly interlocking? system that is I don't know, like you've seen patterns where they just happen to all lock together, but it's the same shape again and again and again.
1: Yeah, it's more the latter. It's not quite as crystalline as as you might expect. It's more stochastic, right? So it's more like if you imagine what fibers look like when you're zoomed in on a piece of paper or something where you have a bunch of interweaving, you know, pieces, it's more like that, right? Not quite MC Escher, right, you know, perfect tiling or something. Yeah. Um, but right, so we don't we don't really have stereoscopic integration or anything like that. But in the anaerobic lines that evolved to be large, what we did was every 200 days of evolution, so from zero days all the way up to thousand, we pulled out an isolate, so they're one clonal genotype for each time point, and then we grew those up and we stripped them down to single cells in a really slick procedure where we can basically dis- digest away the cell wall, get single cells, and then we can sequence the gene expression of each one of those cells. It's a really cool technique. It's very, very cutting edge. Everyone, everyone's proposing it in their grants and stuff these days, because it's really powerful. You know, gene expression analysis has been around for a long time, but now you can do it at the single cell level. That allows you to see information about heterogeneity and division of labor that you couldn't see if you just took a whole organism, mushed them up and asked what genes are being expressed. And when we do this, we see that they start out with really just one cell state, which is a growing cell cell state, and over time they actually evolve three cell states that are very distinct in their gene mm. expression we have we always have the growing cell state and in some sense what we think hap- is happening that is that these guys are kind of almost like the stem cells they do, do the division and then some of those cells that they make sub turn into different kinds of cells. and then we have a cell state that is expressed primarily we're pretty so I have to be a little careful because this is all work in progress and this sure. is stuff that that you know has not been published yet, but is uh, I'm pretty confident about. The gene expression analysis is done and it looks really good. Um, so I'm, I'm very confident in that. But exactly labeling which cells are doing what and why they're doing it, that's what we're working on right now. Um, so with those caveats aside, I'll tell you what I think is happening. So we have a subset of the cells that are actually expressing a lot more cell wall material these cells if you if you look at the genes that they're turning up these specific cell wall biogenesis genes and you label those products that they're making you see that it's the hu- so so we have sort of this uh this network of cells and that means that you have hub cells that are old and have a bunch of branches attached to them and you know they're highly connected and that's just a consequence of you know older cells have had more time to grow and divide and have more daughters and and they have these big branches of cells that are sort of tugging on them And our biophysical models, we've done some really nice 3D biophysical models with Peter Junker at Georgia Tech. They suggest that's often where the breakage occurs in our groups. So if you want to make the groups stronger and bigger, you should reinforce those specific hub cells and make them stronger. And what we're seeing is in the ancestor, that's not happening. But by 200 transfers, 400 transfers, all of these guys downstream, they're cranking up cell wall biogenesis, and it's being expressed in a subset of those cells, the ones that need it, that are at that hub. So that's pretty cool, because you're kind of hmm. seeing this biophysical differentiation. And so is we that don't know, so is yeah. that
0: sort of similar, like, epigenetic like, yeah. like, you've got the, the cell realizes the conditions that it's in and expresses different genes depending exactly. on its situation, whether it's at that's the outside, or whether it. it's whether it's yep. one of
1: the, the structural components, right? And so there's different ways in which you could get there as a cell, we don't know what the regulation is, is it? Um, there's two basic things we're investigating. One is just that it's an age dependent thing. One of the neat things about our system is that if you're old, you know, you're a hub cell, and yeast are actually very good at knowing how old they are. They do all sorts of things on a clock. And so there may just be an internal clock ticker, right? That's just and so we can what we're doing right now is we're actually turning these, these things that evolve to be multicellular, we're, we're genetically engineering them back to unicellularity. And then we can look at their behaviors when they're not in a group and ask, Are they still doing it? Or? Or are, are they no longer doing the same behavior? It's a pretty cool, pretty powerful mm. technique.
0: And, and so how, I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, you know, when I think about animals like me, you know, mm. I've got hair cells, I've got skin mm-hmm. cells, I've got,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, liver cells, etc. And And right, you have got this differentiation that is just continued mm-hmm. and continued and continued. And so is the hope that you're starting to see the beginnings of this differentiation in your yeast. And if you run the experiment forward, you will get to some point where it's clearly making outer membranes inner structural elements, etc.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, we don't. So one of the neat things about what we're doing is it's exploration, like we I do not know what's going to happen. And if I had hypotheses, they're only as good as my prior knowledge. I mean, that's actually one of the things that that is wonderful about our about our approach is that, in some sense, it's hypothesis driven science, but in another sense, it's not. It's exploration. And, and you, hypotheses are great for finding mechanism, for trying to get at the sort of nitty gritty of why something does something else. But if you're in a space where you don't understand it very well, hypotheses can be a crutch, because mm-hmm. you can only hypothesize what you already understand, or you at least think you understand. And so exploration is slightly different. You know, We are prospectively exploring how complexity arises in real time, which will allow us to generate additional hypotheses that we can rigorously test. But there's so much that we don't know about multicellularity that we are, I think, better served by doing exploration rather than taking what we already know and, you know, trying to see if it's, you know, rigorously test those hypotheses in model systems or, or, or mathematical models.
0: It, it must be it must be. Exciting to see these kinds of things starting to develop, but also frustrating in that it still takes so long. You wish you could just go forward. <laughs> you know, you've been doing it for whatever twelve years. You know, imagine another yeah. twenty years. Where would we be? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, but you but every That's day right. you have to come in and you have to feed the yeast and you have to collect the survivors and you got to go. There's all and, these. And,
1: and, and you even can't you're let it totally stop. right. <laughs> and even once you have the super exciting result, it's usually. Two to five years before you can publish it because you have to just make an iron, you have to really understand right. It, right. So we try to do a really holistic style of science where we do the evolution, we do the genetics to identify the things that have changed, we use the genetics to identify genetic mechanism. We integrate this with fundamental biophysics because you cannot understand multicellularity without understanding its biophysical context. It's so deeply embedded to how and why multicellularity evolves. And we try and integrate all this with broader mathematical models that try and extrapolate this beyond a simple laboratory model system. So our papers are they're multi-year efforts from a team of, of from a big team of scientists with different skills. And that's really rewarding because you can write, you can do the kind of science that I frankly always wanted to do. Um, but it's only made possible by, you know, by, by strong funding, by long, by long grants, you know, five-year grants are really nice. By being able to have people that are willing to invest five years in a project and just really go after it day after day, and you know tie up every loose end, and while at the same time cool cool new stuff is coming down the pipe, and you're like, oh, I want to work on the shiny new thing. No, no, we got to get the old stuff out. Right. Don't forget about um, the yeast. Feed the yeah. yeast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, um, I mean, yes. it is
0: interesting that yes. that. I mean there's this division in the astronomical fields. And you know, I'm sure it's the same in yours that there's the theorists and then there are the experimenters. And I tend to favor the experimenters just because Mm. there's something just so joyful about just Mm. going out, as you say, it's exploration, you kind of go out into the unknown, you don't know what you're going to find. Let's yep. what will happen if yep. we just keep feeding yeast and keep collecting the heaviest ones and just let that yeah. run for 10s of 1000s yeah. of generations? Yeah. yeah, let's find out.
1: And it and already it's changed our priors. Yeah, right, considerably. So when I started this out, nobody was doing experimental evolution and multicellularity it was frankly, sort of a ludicrous idea, because the thinking was, well, you're never going to make an animal. It's too hard. It takes too many steps. We don't even know what what to start with and how to select for it. And you know, the thinking was that multicellularity was rare and very difficult, mm-hmm. and that in fact we can get into this. But there's this general thinking in biology and probably in astronomy as well: the things that are rare indicates that they're difficult. <laughs> and in biology, that's not always the case. Yeah, you can have things that are rare because they came first and filled the niche and suppressed further innovation into that space. Or you can have, you know what I mean? And so you can have things that are common, even though they're extraordinarily difficult, because there's an advantage and evolution has has many uh, high dimensional ways of, of getting to to right. different places to, to the same place, uh, given you know, many generations of selection.
0: So, so, so I'd like to I'd yeah. like to shift gears just to talk about sure. yeah. <clears throat> about your work in in astrobiology. So sure. what projects have you been involved in in
1: astrobiology? That's a good question. Honestly, the main thing is our yeast system, I, I would kind of okay. classify this as both evolution and astrobiology in the sense that if your question is, what's the probability that we'll find complex life on another planet, then understand then multicellularity is one of those major transitions in evolution that you need to have good priors on its difficulty, right? If you think it's rare and very difficult, then you'll say, cool, well, then the probability of getting life is this, the probability of getting cells is that. And the, pro, you know, and if we have a bunch of planets with cellular life, the probability of having multicellular life is you know, maybe one in a thousand. And then what about intelligent multicellular life? Oh, there's another one in a thousand. And then the chance that they're around when we're looking, well, there's another one in a thousand. Okay, we're not going to find them. So like filling in those priors, that's, that's in one sense, what I think a very important job of, the field of multicellularity research, you know, we're, we're primarily coming from an evolution stance, like my, my, I was trained in EB But in that in astrobiology, I think it's, it's really helpful to try to figure out what's the probability of this? What are the big constraints? Are there certain geochemical conditions under which this is favored? For example, you know, is how important is oxygen? Is no oxygen t- a death knell? Is, is high oxygen necessary? Um, those are all really open questions. And they're very difficult to answer for anything outside of Earth. Well, the, <laughs> and so the, we can do some stuff here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the traditional when you do the tr- the traditional argument, say for like the Fermi paradox, is that the universe is big, and that it's old, and, mm-hmm. and the Earth formed billions of years after the formation of the universe that, that weirdly life arose fairly rapidly into the Earth's formation, super fast, super fast, yeah, like, literally as quickly as it could possibly do so. And yet, multicellular life arrived later on, it seemed like it was a more difficult way to 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 form life. And that the reason Mm -hmm. we don't have we don't see life out there in the universe is that it's entirely possible that that multicellular life is something that only arose on earth and has never been figured out anywhere else and this is you know the rare earth hypothesis that mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. but and it feels to me yeah. like you're kind of destroying that theory
1: yes and no i mean at least yes in the sense that if you if the argument you made i do think we are destroying that argument but you can make a secondary version of that argument that's that's, that's not destroyed, which is multicellularity per se, is pretty easy. Like, I mean, we've done, I haven't really talked about all the other stuff that we've done in this area, but like we can kind of show that the conditions required to get a group of cells, to have that group of cells become Darwinian, such that it replicates, has heredity, selection acts upon it, and it adapts at the multicellular level. That's trivially easy. There's probably not a cellular lineage in the world that given time, we couldn't make it do that. Hmm. Like, I think that's really, really fundamental. Like if you have replicators, you can get a group of replicators that becomes its own replicator and that's not hard. In fact, in a sense, that's what cells do too, but just bounding it in a membrane rather than sticking a bunch of membrane bound things together. Like you see this happening in biology all the time. You have this hierarchically, you know, nested doll of replicators within replicators within replicators, and that's really easy. But if you're talking about intelligent life, there's a number of bottlenecks in there that aren't really just about multicellularity, but are about a specific kind of multicellularity. And there's a bunch of singularities that are pretty difficult. So for example, do you need to... So cellular life, in some sense, the hardest challenges in all of biology are getting a bacteria or an archaea, getting a cell, a cell, yeah. right? Like coupling... Like the abiogenesis in the, in the first place. That's hard. Like... Yeah. I think it's in some sense, the the fact that it happened so fast, the fact that like, you know, I actually think that Eric Smith and um, what's his name? He was just on Mindscape, gave a great, great interview. Um, ah, I'm forgetting his name. Sorry. What's, a, what's, what's,
0: what's the concept? What's the theory? I might be able to help you.
1: Uh, origin of life.
0: Right. So like panspermia versus... Yeah, versus... I mean, so there's there's
1: biochemists and chemists that are working on origin of life, yeah, and yeah. I think there's convergence in the field um, that you know what you need is essentially primitive metabolism that's primarily driven by planetary disequilibria, right? Right. Primarily, like you have a, a giant battery of a planet. If you have a wat- a planet with a with a uh, ferrous core and a water surface, then you're just going to have electrons fluxing from the core into space via UV breaking apart water, and then electrons from oceanic spreading or whatever, like basically going into that oxygen and flying off into space when hydrogen is liberated and fluxed out, out off the planet. So you have this like just constant electric battery of Earth, which prov- which allows for disequilibria to exist. And if those energetic disequilibria disequ- equi- can be endogenized and accelerated by right. chemistry, then you just you kind of have seeded this planetary incubator yeah. for chemist- chemical evolution. Right. And, you know, the difficult thing is like, you, you have the metabolism for free, you get simple carbon chain metabolism, like fischer toff reactions occurring on minerals in all sorts of, all sorts of aquatic environments for free. And um, all you really have to do is get a TCA cycle, a Krebs cycle, run it backwards, and you can fix carbon and make all the molecules that we ever really need in biology. And you just kind of have to couple that metabolism to a Darwinian mechanism. Um, that accelerates it, and then you're off to the races because, you know, they ha- it can happen fast. And I'm, I'm actually kind of partial to that argument. So what are the singularities that, that, that are difficult with getting to complex life? The big ones are, so cells are huge and difficult, but apparently apparently happens fast. <laughs> Once you have that, um, eukaryotic cells are seemingly important, right? There's no bacterial lineages that have evolved anything remotely complex in the multicellular space you're talking about chains of cells or the very best these balls of nostoc cyanobacteria that look like those balls you throw in your dryer to keep things from clumping up mm-hmm, they're about mm-hmm. like about that size they occur on occur really cold lakes but they're just spherical balls of of, of cyanobacteria they're not that exciting eukaryotes, which are these cells that are essentially, you know, they have this symbiosis with JV mitochondria, actually don't personally think the mitochondria is game changing in that many ways. But what eukaryotes have that is game changing is a really complex architecture to the cell, they have a lot of flexibility and dynamicism in the way the cell can move, they have actin cytoskeletal networks, they have all this subcellular um, compartmentalization. And it's relatively easy for there's a lot of possible states that a eukaryotic cell can exist in. They can be an amoeba, they can be flagellated, they can be hard. I mean, they can do everything. All the different kinds of cellular differentiation you see in plants and animals, like the er, uh, ur-eukaryote could probably do some version of that, right? Like these things aren't really new, they're just repurposed. So eukaryotic cells have all this behavioral repertoire that prokaryotes just don't really have. Prokaryotes are primarily super crazy and complex across lineages but eukaryotes a single genotype can be complex right and so that's that's the main advantage that eukaryotes have eukaryogenesis just happened once it's probably pretty hard to do in my opinion it took a while and it required a pretty wholesale reworking of the way in which these cells work you have to have a nucleus you have to have all these other compartments that's hard and so and that took a long time so that's that's one sort of singularity that's a bottleneck The next one is animals. Like we don't think of plants as being intelligent, right? You can have all the cool macroalgae, kelps, plants, Volvox, you know, there's really cool algae out there from a multicellularity perspective, but they're not going to be making radio intents. You need something which is a heterotroph, which can have, which can have, you know, cognition, neural networks, brains, right? So first of all, you need to evolve something like animals. Animals are their own singularity. the holozones. So animals, we call them the metazones. That's the clade that that is synonymous with animals. And the holozones are like, kind of one hierarchical level higher. And those include these other quasi single celled, quasi multi celled oceanic critters, Philisterians, uh, Ichthyosporians, quantiflagellates, and they have all these really interesting cellular behaviors that you see in animals. And In fact, almost all the genes that we have for multicellular development These things that aren't animals, they have them. They use them for different things. Animals seem to have just repurposed them for multicellularity. But animals only evolved once. And to some extent, the conditions were probably, you know, had to be kind of right for that to happen. You got probably needed a fair amount of oxygen, right? Um, Especially for things like bilaterians. We don't think about this, but non-bilaterian animals really just have one or two cell layers thick. Jellyfish are like one cell layer thick with jelly (laughs) on the inside. Bilaterians, have multiple cell layers thick, and you're probably not going to get that without oxygen and without circulatory systems and oxygen carriers, static oxygen binding molecules like globins and then mobile globins, especially that you can move around. Once you have gills, you can, you can get really big, right? Because you can <laughs> decouple size from diffusion. Um, and that's hard. Getting animals is hard. Getting animals probably require the right genetic composition of the unicellular ancestor. Like you probably aren't going to get animals. You're not going to get animals from an algae. You're not gonna get animals from a fungus, even though fungi are actually fairly closely related to animals. You need something with like holozoan like behavior where you have cells that can be amoeba, cells that can have flagella, things that are already heterotrophic and are not relying on photosynthesis for generating energy. Because if you do that, you're not gonna make an animal. You're gonna make something which looks like a plant. You need to set the stage for something which has the genetic repertoire of animals, but is not yet an animal. And how hard is that? I don't know, but my <laughs> guess is that's pretty hard, much harder than multicellularity at large. And so, finally, oh, oh sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, I got one more. Finally, yeah. I got one more. Once you have animals, it's not just enough to have a jellyfish. You need animals with brains. You need animals with neurons. Neurons, interestingly, evolve twice, we think, within animals. Once in comb jellies and once in mussels, too. And once within the cnidarians and bilaterians, which is kind of astonishing, honestly, that like comb jellies, right? These, uh, these things which have like luminescent patterns as they wave their cilia. um they have different genes for neural transmission and muscles. And if you like use any of the neurosystem modulating drugs that we have, like that work on all animals, it doesn't work on them because they're not using the same genes. It's really cool.
0: That's amazing. I had no idea.
1: Yeah. So once you have an animal, basic animal, it's probably not that hard to make a neuron. In fact, we have it conversionally evolving, right? So and neurons are just bootstrapped up bioelectric cells. All cells can communicate with other cells bioelectrically. Every cell uses an electron gradient to generate energy. And so being able to tweak other cells electron gradients is pretty easy with you know, membrane bound proteins that can be dynamically regulated based on voltage. And so basically the, the building blocks for cells to communicate bioelectrically is just embedded in the system of how cells work and neurons are just super specialized versions of, of regular cells, right? And so then once you have a nervous system, how difficult is it to evolve a brain and have intelligence, right? Intelligence in the sense of being able to, you know, within generation, plastically fit your environment and do all sorts of complicated things. That's pretty hard too. Uh, although brains appear to evolve once in bilaterians, but big brains evolved twice, uh, or so multiple times within, within mammals even, but also you see like uh, octopi and squid evolving big brains pretty independently of the rest of animals, like You know, they're sharing a common recent ancestor with with a mollusk, (laughs) with with a clam. And so, you know, an octopus brain is a pretty remarkable achievement for a clam. So I actually think that that's possible to do, but, you know, difficult. And then once you have a brain, getting a brain sufficiently large that you can have civilization scale, cultural evolution take place, which is what you need if you're going to generate the resources required to have technology and be detectable across the universe. That's pretty hard, too. Right. You had to have primate brains, which have a different fundamental scaling law between brain size and neuron density. Most brains actually begin to plateau out, you make bigger brains, but you're not packing the neurons as dense. But bird brains and primate brains break that trend. And basically, we just have a scaled up chimp, you know, monkey brain, our brain has the same density as a, as a capuchin, but it's just really big. And so it's relatively easy to just pull on that lever of making our brains bigger. Having us evolve that in a social context, allowing for communication. Once you have communication and societal level scales of stores of information being being preserved, uh, you can have the kinds of technological development that you could detect across the universe. But there's a whole lot of singularities baked into the story I just told you, and really not any of them rely on multicellularity other than in the sort of most proximate sense.
0: Right. And if you had to pick one of those,
1: mm. would it be you carry it? is the most difficult? Yeah. I'd say animal.
0: If I had to pick I'd say animal. Yeah, so a, a sort of Swiss Army knife of a cell seems Mm -hmm. possible. Yes, a single a single cell, but that's really under a lot of evolutionary pressure to figure out how to be able to be adaptable in a lot of places. But for them to come together and differentiate and form an animal feels like a
1: pretty big jump. I think mobile heterotrophy with muscular motility dictated by a nervous system can, 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 you know, like that, that type of behavior. It's maybe not the most biggest, It's maybe not the biggest jump, but it just seems so dependent on having the right system, having the right cell biology and having the right earth scale situation where you need the unicellular ancestor with that repertoire of behaviors, you need, I think you do need actually a lot of oxygen to get something which is animal-like because it's heterotrophic. It's gonna be burning a lot of O2. Because it's big, it's gonna need fairly high O2, even if it evolves things like gills. Um, And maybe maybe actually like you could survive going back lower O2 once you had a high O2 intermediary where you could actually overcome the, you know, because they start out just, they don't start out with gills, they start out needing diffusion. to me, that just feels more dependent on cellular, like s- biological and Earth priors. That kind of Goldilocks have to come together. Mm-hmm. Whereas, eukaryogenesis, to me, I think I think there's more opportunities for that. You can be chill- you can chill in a deep sea hydrothermal vent and be kind of ignorant of what the rest of the world is doing and become a eukaryote. Like that's kind of what we think has happened, right? Like right. the things that are not eukaryotes, but are the most eukaryote-like, are these Asgard archaea, named after the what is it, the Norse gods, mm. uh, and the Loki archaeota and the Heimdall archaeota, which are fun to say, are these archaea which are found in these, you know, deep sea hydrothermal vents, that they are very much archaea, they don't have mitochondria, but they have all these genes that we thought once were, re- were only found in eukaryotes, they have complex cells, they're interacting with bacteria symbiotically in their environment in ways that like really looks like a precursor to, uh, to domesticating mitochondria. They're doing Chemical metabolism with like bacteria, and they have these long, elongated arms that they're interacting with them. It's one of the coolest discoveries in the last five years, honestly, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah.
0: you know, you're doing an experiment to essentially to try to make uh, yeast into a eukaryote.
1: Well, they're already a eukaryote. So, So well, sorry, uh, sorry,
0: to, to mm-hmm. more differentiate then to, can, yeah, you know, do you? I mean, is the goal to make that transition to? to animal? Or can you envision a different experiment? Same thing, 1000s of generations to try to go
1: from pre animal to animal? Yeah, we're not going to get animals. um, Because they have a fundamentally different ecology. Uh, Our guys aren't modal, they're not really tracking down prey, like that kind of thing. What I want to see just I'll I'll answer the second question next. But what I want to see with our system is like, I think snowflakes are are their own thing. They're their own organism, and they're going to evolve bodies and division of labor. I didn't even tell you about the third kind of cell type, but it doesn't matter. But they're going to evolve bodies and division of labor in ways that make sense for them, based on their mode of growth, based on the selection that we're applying to them, right? Like based on the 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 toolkit that's available from their unicellular ancestor, which is broadly speaking, that's true for every single thing evolving multicellularity. Those are the, that's the way in which it works. And so, you know, I want to see how far we can push them we're already getting to the point where reverting them to unicellularity genetically is is very difficult, if not impossible. I want to get to the point where, you know, I would like to know if can, at a certain point, if we break them back to unicells, do they die? Are they like animals in that sense that like single cells just perish, they're not able to persist? How much developmental innovation can we get? How complicated and how 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 organized and how precise and how robust can their bodies become? Right? How many different cell types can we get? How much transcriptional regulation can we see like these are all really open questions that I'm delighted they're evolving as quickly as they are frankly like I know it's slow but it's actually faster than I expected like didn't expect to see cell type differentiation so soon and yet I think it's unambiguously happening so the second question is how could we get something more like animals and I think what you want to do there is take something which is basically from that holozoan group so in fact we started a project doing this and covid killed it sadly oh. um So yeah, you want to take like a quinoflagellate, Uh, Nicole King is, you know, one of the world leaders, I'd say the world leader in quinoflagellate animal, animal relation, multicellularity. Quinoflagellates are these cool creatures that live in the ocean. They share a common ancestor with animals like 1.1 billion years ago. They look like a sponge. In fact, the, the individual cells in a quinoflagellate are almost identical physiologically to the cells in a sponge. They have a little collar, they have a flagella. They whip the water around them. They suck the water through. It gets caught on that collar, which has mucus on it, and they eat bacteria that are being filtered through them. So they're basically doing at the single cell level or at the small multicellular group level what a sponge is extremely good at doing: pushing, pulling water through it, and filtering out the bacteria eating it. So we, so Kai Tong, this great PhD student in my lab, started an experimental evolution project with quantiflagellates, where we were we were basically evolving them two different ways: size selection, like our snowflake yeast. What happens if we pull on the lever to get bigger? How do they do it? Can they, you know, what happens? And then also one where you're trying to make them adhere to a, a substrate and become more sponge-like. So, you know, sticking like a little blob sticking to a glass slide and filtering water through them. Um, and then Kai went back to China in fall of 2019, to uh, December of 2019, to renew his visa. And COVID hit and he was locked out of the stuck. country for a year and a half. Yeah. And, and it destroyed that project. But that's how
0: you would go about it. You think
1: I would either use quinoflagellates, or there's another researcher um, in Switzerland, uh, Omaya Duden, who works with a different holozone, the ichthyosporians. And he actually has a system which has proto embryos, like it forms a sphere, and it has like polarity and then it just like sporulates and makes so it forms a sphere of cells that has polarity and it looks like an embryo but then it just explodes with a whole bunch of spores (laughs) so it looks like an animal embryo until it explodes the spores it's really 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 cool and uh he's really keen on doing some experimental evolution as well and i think we're going to collaborate on that um, project as well
0: it's interesting i mean it it seems like like going after what appear to be the rate limiting steps and then Mm -hmm. trying to force the evolution in the lab will give a lot of information about how difficult it, it might actually be. Um, I've got totally. one, we're sort of running a little over time. How's your time? Are you Okay. 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 I'm, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. Okay. So um, I want to talk about this idea of a shadow biosphere. And this has been proposed by by many people that there are life forms that, you know, that are existing within our environment, but we don't have the we're not looking for them. And so we just never notice them. Do you think there's any possibility of a shadow biosphere?
1: can you tell me more I, you, I have my own thoughts on this but I want to I want to get a little more insight on in what you're on what you're thinking
0: well I don't I mean I don't think anything um, oh, the, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah I mean I think that I mean it it, it doesn't seem I mean me personally you know yeah. you know my job is to ask the questions my opinion mm-hmm. is that the is that that we all use the same matter energy and and mm-hmm. there would be waste produced in certain ways that would be mm-hmm. obvious and we wouldn't know where that came from when you think about a mm-hmm. a Uh, a seabird colony that's, you know, there's tons and tons of bird Mm -hmm. poop everywhere. Where did Mm -hmm. the bird poop come from? We would see (laughs) giant deposits of, it's like a dark matter
1: question. (laughs) Yeah, we would see
0: giant, exactly. We see giant deposits of stuff and go, where did that come from? There's no biological process that's doing it. And yet it just keeps appearing out of nowhere. Must be the shadow biosphere. And so I think that, Mm. I think if it was, if it was, I guess, uh, if there was enough out there, then we would see the evidence macro evidence that would be obvious mm-hmm. and, and be in the place for search. That's
1: my feeling. So I got two thoughts on this. And one is and one is very real and one is currently sci fi. <laughs> Alright, so the very real one is that there is a shadow biosphere of a sort, in that we do see it if we look for it, but we typically haven't looked very much. And that is the deep earth biosphere. Basically, no matter how far down you go in Earth, <laughs> you pull samples, You find living things Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous you find them inside rock you can dig up mud that has been in the seafloor for a million years and separated from the from the surface and it's full of living bacteria and they have highly reduced genomes and it looks like they've just been circling the same carbon over and over and over and just fragmenting their genomes until they become highly specialized on different you know small and smaller pools of of of, of food that's available right yeah you go all sharing the same carbon atom just yeah with a little bit heat and they have like you know, yeah. you can estimate their, their doubling time and it's like 10,000 years. That's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous, right? You go down to, you know, uh, gold mines a mile deep, you tap the water and there's like a single species of bacteria that's, that's eating hydrogen that's being created by radioactive decay. And like, that, that's really, I think that's really cool. Like the fact, the I mean, it basically means that outside of like the sun absorb, you know, essentially cooking, turning us into Venus, like. There's no way to sterilize this right. planet. But we so share a common ancestor with, with that. Life. We do. Right. Yep. So, yep. so something
0: yep. that we don't share a common ancestor that is still existent on uh, the Earth. Okay. I don't know of return. any evidence
1: for that, but here's the sci-fi thing. And what made me really think about this seriously for the first time was a paper two, three years ago, where somebody made a mirror image uh, DNA synthase. And so basically it copies DNA, but it makes a copy that has the opposite chirality of standard DNA. So the really interesting thing about this is that all the enzymes that work on modern DNA, standard DNA, it doesn't work on it, right? You can take, you can take this stuff. You can put it in pond water for a month. They did this and it's completely intact after a month. Whereas you take regular DNA and it's gone in like an hour (laughs) because everything wants to eat it. Yeah. And I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not a, I'm not a biochemist, but if I think but the thing that got me thinking about this as a, Oh my God, this could be the, this could be a phase transition where humans, inexorably change the way in which life on Earth works, like forever, is if you were to make a mirror image ribosome in a mirror image cell where everything was the opposite chirality, um, you could make something which basically ha- wasn't an ecological competition, really, maybe for like me- metals or something, but it wasn't really an ecological competition with the standard biosphere, wasn't impacted by toxins from the standard biosphere. There's a fair amount of automatic chiral switching that just happens spontaneously, Hmm. spontaneous racemization. So there's kind of crumbs. I think there's crumbs on the, you know, crumbs up from the, the feast of the standard biosphere that something which was mirror world biosphere could actually consume. And so if somebody were to make a mirror world pelagibacter or a mirror world, you know, whatever environmental bug and release it, it seems plausible to me that you'd have something which would then have a completely open ecological niche where there's all these little metabolic crumbs trickling down through spontaneous parasitization from this huge biosphere. And they can essentially evolve and, 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 and occupy different niches with very little competition. Viruses wouldn't impact them. Right. Antibiotics wouldn't impact them. You know, they'd be competing for space. They'd be competing for middle, you know, light, they'd be competing for metals, but they, but, but nothing else. And, um, wouldn't that be a trip? Once you open that bag, I don't think it's ever you're never going back, right? Yeah, that's
0: really interesting that that I mean, you know, it's sort of similar to this idea of of people talking about like aliens and just like, you know, what if the aliens were so different that we couldn't even comprehend them? And Mm -hmm. That's absolutely possible but we mm-hmm. share a universe we share mm-hmm. radiation right. from the stars we share right. the various chemistry that it, that exists in our that's right but but if they for example were based on opposite chirality life mm-hmm. then then there would also be vast that we wouldn't be competing with them about and maybe wouldn't recognize their their processes and wouldn't be able to detect them you know if you were measuring the 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 chemicals in the atmosphere on some exoplanet and you wouldn't be able to detect the the outgassing that you would be expecting then it would sort of throw the whole the whole search into doubt so it's a very fascinating it's a very
1: fascinating idea um, isn't it a cool idea and and the proof mm-hmm. of principle of making making this in the lab the mirror image DNA synthase and making mirror image DNA. <laughs> it's like, it's not just sci-fi. Like somebody, this is within the next mm-hmm. hundred years, someone could probably do this. Oh, wow, that's really fascinating. I mean, a ribosome is much harder than a DNA synthase,
0: but it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, William, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Yeah. If people want to keep an eye on your research and yeah, yeah, hear, yeah. you know, the latest generation of the yeast and what it's up mm-hmm. to, what's the best yeah. place to do that?
1: Twitter for sure. So whenever we post, we post all of our papers as preprints, because uh, it usually takes a year or more to get it finally published after all the revisions you have to do, et cetera. So I, you know, I, I publish all of our, I, you know, I push all of our preprints to Twitter. You can just see me talking about random biology stuff there, too. Um, Absolutely
0: fascinating. Yes. And what's your, cool. what's your Twitter handle? Thanks
1: for having handle? me on. Uh, wc underscore ratcliffe perfect
0: all right well William, uh, please let me know when one of your yeasts uh sort of crawls out of the petri dish and uh if i'm
1: still here after yeah, that event then i'll let
0: you know that. that sounds great all right well thank you so much all right thanks major take care